You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. As long as humanity has created the arts, the arts have served as a media for encounters. And usually those various encounters evoke a response of some kind. And commonly that response is one of reflection. The arts and the encounter created by them often create an awareness Something new, something you didn't know before, didn't see before. Something is opened up that leads to thought, to wonder, to possibility. If nothing else, we often find ourselves in the encounter. We marvel at ourselves and our ability to create and to express through what we create. It leads us to ponder ourselves. But the arts are rarely private expressions. They are intended in some way to be public, where we encounter others. And this evokes communication and dialogue and debate, often shared moments of joy and enrichment. And of course, from very early on, humanity has used the arts as a means of encountering the sacred the gods or God. One of the oldest art forms is storytelling. It was by means of story that people entertained themselves, that they taught children and instilled values, beliefs, and culture. It was also the means of preserving what was important, ancestry, sacred events. Most of both Jewish and Christian scripture existed as story long before it was written and became scripture. And even after scripture, oral tradition continued as a supplement and often as the only way that some heard scripture. So my guest today is Donna Marie Todd. She's a storyteller and especially a biblical storyteller. And so we want to explore and enjoy that art form today. So hi, Donna. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Hey, David Rayburn. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your own spiritual journey uh, as it led into this art form, and then talk to us about what this art form is. Sure. Well, let me start with my journey. Let's see. I was born um, to a United Methodist pastor and his wife in the wild, woolly hills of West Virginia, where storytelling is still um, an educational tool and an entertainment tool. And so story was always just kind of a part of my original life. I, um, from an early age on, had a odd relationship, it seemed to me at the time, with the scripture in the sense that when other people read the scripture, it sounded like they were reading a grocery list or something. And what I heard when I finally was able to read on my own, you know, and began studying the scriptures on my own, what I saw instead was dialogues going on, more like um, there was a play unfolding in my mind. And I didn't know for the longest time which way was right, the laundry list or the great drama unfolding between us and God. So I um, remember one of the first stories that I ever heard in Sunday school uh, not the first one I heard, but the first one that really struck me as wrong was when I was about um, 11 years old, I guess. And our teacher at the time uh, was an elementary school teacher during the week, and then she taught Sunday school on the weekends. And she was a very you know, devoted person in the church, as far as that goes, always there when the doors were open. But um, she told us the story from um, for, uh, Second Samuel of, of David and Bathsheba. And she told it as a love story. And I was very taken aback by that because when I looked at the text, I instead saw it as a story of power and violence and cruelty of unknown proportion, of dishonor, of um, abandonment, of loyalty, 
and so I, that was one of those moments when I went, I don't think I agree with this approach that most people are taking to the scriptures. My, my second um, kind of revelation came when I, you know, entered high school and was really beginning to, through youth group and private study, you know, learn the scriptures more fully and became aware of the fact that often, um, not so much when I heard my father preach, he was a, an amazing orator, but more when I heard other pastors preach when we would go to large conferences and such, I recognized that they would take little snippets out of a story and present it as their own version of the truth and then build a sermon around that snippet of what they believed to be their truth. And so that, that began to um, rather go against my own mind with things. Um, and then I went away to college. I was a kind of a vocal prodigy. And um, I went away to the Conservatory of Music in Baltimore, Peabody Conservatory, to study vocal performance. And there, um, at a very historic downtown church, I felt even more separation from my experience of the scriptures. And being in a big city for the first time, you know, a girl from the hills of West Virginia, you know, ending up in the big city of Baltimore. And, um, you know, there were so many uh, things on display there, especially at a music school that I'd never been exposed to. Um, you know, um, homosexuality, which is fairly rampant in the arts, and um, lots of uh, people who had either agnostic or atheistic backgrounds, or um, the majority of the other students in my conservatory were Jewish. And so that gave me a different perspective on what the Old Testament was. I, I didn't understand really until I got there, which I know sounds silly, but I, I didn't really understand that most of our Old Testament was, in fact, the Hebrew Bible. So I... Um, I mean, I knew it was pre-Jesus, but it just didn't really occur to me um, that, that there was that really strong relationship with the Old Testament. So um, I drew away from the church. I became um, very jaded about it and very jaded about um, my relationship to it and uh, didn't really interact much with anyone in Baltimore who um, attended church and so just kind of drew away from it. And... When I married my husband, Perrin, um, we actually met in Memphis after I had lived in San Francisco and kind of traveled around the country doing theater arts and musical arts. Um, met my husband, Perrin, in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was a Presbyterian pastor's son. And so as we got together and um, were married by our dads, which was kind of a frightening experience to be, do you take my daughter to be your <laughs> lovely daughter? <laughs> <laughs> as we, you know, as we began to, to live into a life of faith together, um, we would have conversations about different pieces of scripture, you know, after we would listen to worship and we'd hear a sermon about it. And um, I always had still this, this feeling that what, what was being read from the lectern um, was being read like a grocery list, like... Um, an excerpt from uh, the driver's handbook or something. It just didn't have any life energy in it. And I felt like God was this amazing master creator of life that wasn't being authenticated in the way that the stories were taking place from that lectern reading. So um, I, again, had dissatisfaction about that. But it really wasn't until our son was born, uh, which was fairly late in life uh, for me, um, that as he became um, able to listen to and understand the scriptures, I began to internalize them. I began to study them and learn them by heart so that I could share them with him in the way that I heard them. And that's really when my journey toward biblical storytelling began. So what is biblical storytelling as opposed to just regular storytelling? What is that? Well, biblical storytelling... Um, is where you internalize the text as it's been tradition to you. It really doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you use. Uh, what really matters is that you try to aim for about 75 to 80% accuracy with the text as it's presented in um, the Bible, again, whichever translation you would like to use, um, and that you internalize the scripture. We, we, as storytellers, we don't like to use the word memorize because stories have words but stories are not words. Stories are really pictures that the storyteller sees that they try to tell you about. 
And so as a storyteller, you take the scripture into your heart, you pray over it, you mull over it, you try to see the images that are present in it, so that then when you tell the text, it becomes alive. And that's the difference between storytelling um, and reading of the lectionary. Now, traditional storytelling, of course, takes great folk tales and often in these days and times, original stories um, and presents them. So that some of the, the performance skill sets are the same, but it's the source material that differs. One of the disadvantages we have is that we don't get to see your expressions. Yes, yes. Because I know that's a large part of, of, of the performances that I've seen yes. uh, of it. But nonetheless, uh, you're going to give us some samples. I am. And, you know, I, I mentioned my, um, <clears throat> my devoted Sunday school teacher who, uh, who told that story from Second Samuel as a love story between David and Bathsheba. And um, so I think I'd like to use that as an example, if I may. That would be wonderful. So, David, I would like to tell you at this time, then, this story from the second book of Samuel. Chapters 11 and parts of 12. It was the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to do battle. And Joab and all of the warriors of Israel besieged Rabbah, and they ravaged the Ammonites. But David himself remained in Jerusalem. It happened one afternoon when the king rose from his couch. He was walking about on the roof of the king's palace. And from the roof, he was able to look down on a house where there was a woman bathing. She was ritualistically bathing. She was purifying herself before the Lord after her period. And she was very, very beautiful. So David inquired about the woman. And it was reported to him that this was Bathsheba, daughter of a lion wife of his warrior, Uriah the Hittite. So David sent for her, and his messengers brought her to him, and he laid with her. And afterwards, she returned to her home, She conceived, and she sent word to David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And when he arrived, David inquired of Uriah how the people were faring, how was the war going? And then he said to Uriah, you have come from a, a long journey. You have been at war. Why don't you um, go down to your house and wash your feet and see your wife? Well, Uriah the Hittite, he left the king's presence and he went out onto the porch of the king's palace, but he did not go down to see his wife. And when it was reported to David that Uriah had stayed on the porch of the king's palace and had not gone down to see his wife, he, he sent for him and he said to him, Uriah, you have just come from the war. You have been on a long journey. Why have you not gone down and laid with your wife? And Uriah looked at David, and he said, My lord Joab and 
All the men of Israel are camped in the open field with the ark. They are attacked every day. And I am to come here and go down and lay with my wife? As my soul lives and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Well, then, David said, um, why don't you just stay in Jerusalem another day, and then I'll send you back tomorrow. And that evening, David invited Uriah the Hittite to eat and drink in his presence. <laughs> and David got Uriah the Hittite <laughs> drunk. <laughs> so that he would, you know, go down <laughs> and lay with his wife. <sighs> but Uriah the Hittite again slept on his couch on the king's porch and did not go down to Bathsheba. So the next day, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by Uriah's own hand. And the letter said, put Uriah the Hittite in the place of the heaviest fighting, and then draw back from him, so that he may be struck down by the sword and die. When Joab saw the letter, he put Uriah in the place of the heaviest fighting. And the men of Rabbah ran out into the open field, and there was Uriah in the place where the most valiant warriors were. And then the men of Israel drew back, and many of the men of Israel were killed that day, and Uriah the Hittite was killed by the sword. And then Joab sent word back to David. And he said to the messenger, When you arrive, tell the king about the battle. And if he asks you, Why did you put the men where you knew that the archers would shoot from the roof? And did not a woman throw a millstone and kill several? When he asks you this, you shall say that many of the men of Israel have died and that your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went to David and he did as Joab had instructed him and he said, so the battle was fierce. Um, many archers shot from, from the wall, and, and many of your servants were killed. And, and um, your, your, your servant, your, your, Uriah the, the, the Hittite, he is also dead, Lord David. And David said to the messenger, Return. And tell the general not to worry about this any longer, for the sword devours first one and then the other. Tell him to press on, to continue to besiege Rabbah and overthrow it. Now, when the wife of Uriah the Hittite heard that he was dead. Oh, she, she made lamentation for him. Oh. And when her time of assigned mourning was over, she went to the palace and she became one of David's 
wives, and she bore him a child. But the thing that David did, it enraged the Lord. that David did enraged the Lord. That was amazing. So you all get together as storytellers and learn from each other. How do you go about like teaching this kind of thing? Hmm. Well, we um, as biblical storytellers um I'm a member of the Network of Biblical Storytellers International, and we have a festival gathering every year, usually the first weekend or first part of August and the first weekend in August. We come from all over the world. Um, we gather in different cities. And um, this year we'll be in Dayton, Ohio, at um, United Theological Seminary. Um, when we come together, what we talk about is twofold. We talk about the performance aspect of the scripture, um, how do you use your voice? How do you use your body to convey the emotion of the story? Um, and then we also have um, a scholars seminar that meets prior to the festival um, where scholars of the text come, again, from all over the world to um, discuss uh, various pieces of scripture. It, the piece of scripture is selected prior to the meeting, so it's a very s specific conversation. And then often, um, following that um, scholarly discussion, then members of the group uh, perform the book that they have been discoursing. So this year, for instance, it's the works of Acts. It's the book of Acts. And so uh, we learn from watching one another perform. We also learn from those who have studied the ancient Hebrew and the Greek and who sit and discuss what do they think the real meaning of this was. Um, for instance, in the story that, that you just heard with David and Bathsheba, um, we have several rabbis in our group, and um, they have um, scholarship that goes back much further than ours in, in the Christian tradition. Um, and they have informed us that the greatest sin that David committed in the eyes of the Lord was not as much the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband um, as it was that David watched Bathsheba bathing in what was a rite of purification before the Lord. This ancient tradition took place in a special bathing pool which was always located on the top of their roofs and it filled with rainwater, so it was considered to be very pure in that sense. And it was only used for rites of purification in the Jewish households in Jerusalem. And David's home would have been the only one high enough to see down into her pool. So his greatest sin was to observe her most intimate moment with God, where she asked for her body to be cleansed from this last lack of a child and to, for her to receive a child, which was considered a gift from God. So they informed us, for instance, that that was the biggest sin, which really changes how you look at the whole thing, because through modern, you know, American, um, you know, Euro-American lenses, it's the adultery piece that's the first big thing, or if you don't really have issues with adultery, and some people don't. <laughs> there are portions of the world out there who don't have issues with that. Um, if you don't have issues with that, then you would have issues with the murder of one of your best um, soldiers You know, when you're at war, and, and for whatever reason, um, you're not even there. Um, so th I thought that was a really interesting interpretation. So, so each time we get together, there are things we learn from one another um, that are surprising and enlightening. And then to hear the differences in the ways that storytellers choose to, what, you know, what's, what parts of the text they, they want to bring out, what parts of the text they want to have fun with. Um, because just like life, you know, the Bible is filled with very humorous moments and it's filled with very tragic moments, filled with very devoted moments and then just ordinary time too. So it's interesting to see. So when you, when you take a text, mm -hmm. um, first time you read it, how do you then kind of mold it and craft it into 
being the story? Hmm. That's a great question. You always ask such great questions. I think um, the the first piece that um, storytellers have to do again, you know, the story is pictures that you're trying to share, and so. Uh, I can only speak for myself, different storytellers approach texts differently. For me, I try to, before I even look at the text, I try to open myself to all possibilities. So I usually do some deep breathing before I look at the text, and then when I actually read the text, I look for the pictures, and I often have a piece of paper next to me where I'll, I'm not a very good artist at all, but where I'll just like draw out um, what the setting is, where is the story taking place. In this particular case, most of it takes place in David's palace. So um, I would draw out, you know, here's the roof, here's Bathsheba's house underneath that, so that I begin to see where he would have been pacing that roof line in the opening of the story. Um, it happened one spring afternoon when the king rose from his couch. I want to be able to see the couch. I want to be able to see him pacing around the roof and then looking down onto Bathsheba's rooftop and seeing her bathe. It's, it's important to me to have the setting of the story drawn out in a, in a way so that I can visualize it better. Um, and then the other part of the story takes place in a battlefield. And to allow yourself to feel the sensations of what that would be like. Um, so when I get to the point of the battlefield, for instance, I'm just using the text that I've told so that for comparison. So when I get to the place in the text where the battlefield is, um, I'll try to see that. And instead of focusing on what are the words saying, I try to focus on what is the picture of that. You know, Uriah is such an amazing warrior, so devoted to the king that he refuses to go and have relations with his wife because it dishonors what he's trying to do as a warrior. And he doesn't want to let go of his warrior energy and anger by having softness with a woman, which is very interesting. And so to sit with this scene of the battle, this is a, an ancient battle, so um, there aren't trucks. There are some, you know, lots of horses and donkeys, and um, there would be slaves there cooking food. They would be literally sleeping in an open field. Um, so, you know, you're going to have injured people who are moaning. You're going to have um, people cooking, there'll be cooked pot smells. So looking for the, s the senses of the story, the five senses, what do you hear, what do you smell, what can you taste, what can you see, what can you feel. Um, to sit inside those sensory elements of the story is really important for the storyteller. Uh, and then the words begin to come. So it's, it's much easier to remember stories based on the images um, and more powerful for the listener to convey the images <clears throat> than it is to focus over the words. Although, you know, clearly you want to have accuracy with the words, but it's more sitting with the images of the story and the sensations within the story that transforms it into a living thing. And so you're, you're at home by yourself. Sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and so you're, you're talking out loud, you're kind of acting it as you go mm. along, or is this just going on inside your mind? No, this is going on. So um, I, I, here's here's what I learned early on. Now, you know, having a lot of training as a performer um, in singing and in theater, both. Um, I initially, David, went too quickly to the performance aspects of it. Um, began working with a rehearsal mirror for the you know the physical. Um, manifestations of different characters, you know, holding a pose on a particularly valuable word or phrase, that kind of thing. And what I discovered as I became um, more advanced in my own work with the, with the text was that really most of the preparation needed to take place within my own mind and heart. That that's really where, um, because this is a sacred text, this, these are the stories of God for the people of God, um, you have thanks to let to God. God in. Yeah, thanks <laughs> be to God. That's right. And you have to let God in there, right? God wants to be in there and um, should be in there and must be in there. So, you know, to sit in, in meditative space, in prayerful space, in imaginative space, to revision what that original text was like, what the story was like, not the words, but the images of the story. What was that like? Then once it begins to come to life inside of you, then to return to the text and begin to mull over the words 
and see how they then interact with the pictures, what happens often is very, very surprising. Do you write any of it down? I use um, a sequence map, which uh, is one of those famous middle school things where I, again, I use symbols going around uh, in a circular fashion to remember um, the sequencing of the story. Um, it's easy, especially in performance, to get lost on a word and to lose the energy of the story when you get lost on the word. If you use the images of the story um, in sequence, you're much less likely to get lost ever. Um, so if I'm performing for conferences where I'm telling multiple um, scriptural tellings and then also maybe performing story concerts, um, it can be um, very helpful to hold on to the images and to trust that the words are there. Because if you spend your time in meditation around those holy words, they will be within you. You can trust that. So there's a, a magazine, there's a periodical. There is. There is, um, there is a magazine called The Biblical Storyteller that I've had the, the honor and privilege of editing for now 10 years, I guess, a little over 10 years. And tell us about that. How does, how does what this art form does translate into a periodical? <laughs> well, there are so many interesting ways that, that people within the network of biblical storytellers are using uh, biblical story. Um, so the magazine explores um, how these stories are being shared and the ways that they are being incorporated into very active ministries. So for instance, um, Vacation Bible Schools, based around the telling of the scripture where you have um, the evening begin with some songs and then with a uh, storytelling presentation of the scripture. And then you move into um, little settings where the children, for instance, might uh, create things from the story. They might make, um, if it's the story of Samuel being called by God, they might make a sleeping mat. Um, they might uh, practice lighting incense in the temple as he would have done. So it becomes a very immersive experience when they hear the story. And children, we are, this is interesting, Dave. I'm going to digress for just a minute here because, um, you know, I, I, I also enjoy science a lot. My, my son is a neuroscientist. And um, recently, in about the last decade or so, as they've become more sophisticated in using all of these fMRIs and um, all kinds of scans of the brain, one of the things that they've discovered is that we are hardwired for different things. For instance, we're hardwired to remember negative things more than positive things because that's how our brain protects itself, especially the amygdala. And so we're also hardwired to hear and to tell stories because it is our most innate form. So what they've discovered in these big fMRIs at places like Harvard and um, UCLA in the med schools there um, is that when they scan the brain of a storyteller, at the same time that they scan the brain of a listener, the areas of sensory memory light up in the listener's brain at exactly the same time they light up in the storyteller's brain, which forms this kind of interneural connection between the storyteller and the listener. And that kind of shows how long we've been doing this. It's, it's actually hardwired into us to receive and to tell story. That's fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? I, I mean, I, I love the science of it. Um, I forget who it is that said that science is getting ready to discover God, but I, you know, I think that's absolutely true. Um, the more we think we know, the less we know, actually. But um, it is fascinating that we're, we are actually hardwired to do that. And so um, another great example would be um, using storytelling um, in youth ministry where kids think, oh, you know, this kind of stuff has never happened before, you know, and grown-ups are so boring, and, you know, you, you tell them a story like David and Bathsheba, and um, all of a sudden, all these aspects of being 18 years old and having to register for the draft, for instance, um, of, you know, what does it mean to commit adultery with someone what is that you know and and how do they feel about that how would they feel about it how you know I, I think to to open those kinds of discussions um into more lively explorations of the scripture um there's really nothing in the whole world that God hasn't already talked about in the Bible I mean there's so many um celebrations so many rituals so many sins 
already represented, that to expose um, particularly youth to that kind of, of understanding that, hey, there's nothing I can really do that God doesn't already have a big picture of, you know, God kind of gets what I'm doing. Um, and then using it in uh, worship ministry. So the articles in the magazine are very focused on how to um, use story in different aspects of ministry. The other piece that the magazine covers is international use of story. And that's where things, for me personally, have gotten very interesting. Are you going to ask me why? Yes. <laughs> why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so enjoy talking with you, David Rayburn. Um, the, the reason is that when we go to places that are basically illiterate, what we find are people who really understand how to tell a story because they are oral learners both O-R-A-L and A-U-R-A-L. They understand how to convey a story at a level that blows us out of the water. They are very visceral in their telling of stories, highly animated. They use pause. They use um, creative breathing. They use all kinds of tools and techniques that their oral culture has train them in for a long time. And if you put um, a teller, for instance, from um, Cambodia or Cameroon or um, Sierra Leone up against a storyteller from Boston, what you will see is that um, illiterate teller pretty much sweeping that Bostonian off the stage because they literally bring it to life. It is their art form. So whereas we take um, the art of biblical storytelling to them, we take the Bible to them, what they have done is bring the art of storytelling to us, which has been just really amazing. So <laughs> do you, in addition to the magazine, is there, is there a website? where you, you can hear some of these things? Yes, I mean, we, we have... Do you um, do YouTube videos? Well, we have, we have all of the above. So we the website of the Network of Biblical Storytellers is um, mbsi.org. Um, and if you just Google Network of Biblical Storytellers, we will come up, and that's probably the easiest way to do it. And uh, there are videos that you can watch online of uh, various kinds of storytellers. There's also um, a very new type of storyteller emerging, one that's very urban and um, edgy, gritty. Um, and you can see samples of that type of storytelling of the text as well. Does that kind of come out of the whole graphic comic book genre? Uh, graphic comic book genre. I, yeah, that, and I think um, there's a... Very definitely a postmodern sensibility to it. It's a um, hey, we're in our twenties and thirties, and um, the world's a mess. Um, environmental destruction, loss of species. You know who the heck are we, and what's going on? There's a, there's a very um, angry undercurrent, uh, a frightened, angry undercurrent to some of that telling that is makes it riveting. So, who are some of those storytellers? Who um, well, let's see. The Jason Chestnut um, has a film company, and he actually um, films himself in different settings, like in front of the White House, telling some of these stories of power. Um, Tracy Radosevic, who heads up our Academy for Biblical Storytelling, is located also out of the D.C. area. Um, and she uh, is adjunct faculty at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. Um, we have Juliana Rowe who is the wife of the ambassador from Sierra Leone, who lives in uh, Ambassador's Row in New York City. And she tells with that ancient um, oral culture energy, even though she schooled at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because she comes from a royal family in Sierra Leone um, that were displaced, actually, in an uprising. So um, there's Kathy Colmer in Texas, um, who works for the Episcopal Diocese there. She is... Um, African-American, tall, beautiful, very um, feline kind of energy and um, brings a very wonderful, visceral um, 
big stage energy to all of her tellings. So then there are all the Australian tellers who, uh, who are, are very um, funny and lighthearted in their tellings and, uh, and have that, you know, really lovely accent, you know, don't they? <laughs> it's lovely, really, to hear them tell. They're, they're like one of my favorites, so. Well, so um, when you go to a church, I mean, like, mm-hmm. like what forms do you go to a church? Or like, like the church wants to have you or, or, right. or a convention wants to have you. Yes. What is it that you do? Well, um, so when I work with churches and conventions, um, I will actually tell the text, whatever text they've decided um, is going to be their worship text. Uh, I will tell that text. Often if it's a church or often if it's a conference, I will do a story sermon in conjunction with that. Um, The story sermon then becomes more of a parable type experience as opposed to taking a couple of lines out of the text and then preaching about that. Um, I also do workshops in biblical storytelling on how to do it, um, how to approach it, and we actually try on a couple of very short stories so that by the end of the workshop experience, whether that's a week-long conference or it's a weekend, the, the people who have participated have taken on, had the chance to take on some stories that can then be the first stories that they hold internally as storytellers. Well, and do you, so I like to make other storytellers. Do you, do you work with kids? And, oh, and absolutely, I work with kids. Workshops with kids and I things like that? workshops with kids and... Um, Vacation Bible schools. Vacation Bible <laughs> schools, yeah. I mean, there's lots of different ways to, to look at that. But I suggest to churches, since I travel all over the country um, and, and abroad too, I, I like to emphasize that, you know, as long as I'm there, you should really utilize me as much as you can. So, for instance, if it's a – often I'll start on a Friday evening. Let's say it's a retreat. It's a, I do a lot of weekend retreat work. I'll start on a Friday evening with a story concert that's usually stories from my own life mixed with my singing. And then Saturday we'll do the workshop about storytelling, or if they want to look at um, stories of grief, if they want to look at stories of um, how to build community. Um, There are so many stories in the Bible that you could select to work around, and we will spend the morning or the afternoon or both, if if everybody's open to that, looking at how the story can inform our lives in different ways and beginning to tell one another our own stories that, again, intersect with that scripture so that we see the parallels between our lives and the lives of the people in the scripture. One of the things that um, you weren't willing to do, but that, that, <laughs> that, that, that you do. I, and I gave you a CD that you can. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, yes, is that you sing often with, oh, your, you with your. And so uh, yes. how, how, do you, how do you incorporate that? I mean, what's the, what's the, the well, dynamic of which you include song or choose to not include song? How does that work? Well, the song um, often comes into the picture uh, in my story concerts. Um, I'm a huge fan of old hymns uh, sung acoustically and um, with acoustic instrumentation. So usually I weave those hymns in and out of my um, concert presentations. And then when I went to um, Israel and Palestine and Jordan on a storytelling tour um, about nine years ago, I guess, I was very taken with the ancient sounds that came um, from the prayer towers. And so often if I'm telling particularly a Hebrew Bible text, I'll open uh, with some of those um, ancient Middle Eastern tonalities just by singing a little bit of that so that it kind of sets the stage for being in a more ancient time. Is the spring of the year. <laughs> well, and like you say, because much of the of the of the, of the Bible is Jewish scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the yes. New Testament. Yes. Um, and and the Jewish heritage has um, uh, such a rich tradition of storytelling, yes. kind of that that is extensions of uh, stories of rabbis and mm-hmm. and 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 uh, moral lessons that occur. Um, how how engaged are the, is the Jewish community with what you're doing? Well, I would say, with the exception of a few rabbis who have been attracted to the scholarly research of our group, um, not as 
diverse as we would like. I, I, and I, I actually think that there's quite a divide between um, the rabbinical approach to scripture and the Christian approach to scripture. Um, the, and I know you know this, but the, the, the Jewish people still have a tradition of teaching their young people the Hebrew itself. And so going to your, your synagogue to learn how to do that from a rabbi, to have your um, celebration of coming of age in the faith is a little, you know, we, we baptize people and we bring them in as members of the church. We confirm them as members. Um, but we don't have anything like what they have in terms of the bar and bas mitzvahs where that child's role now as a full-blown adult in the faith is celebrated by the elders who have helped him grow by his family. And um, there's a level of affirmation that takes place in those ceremonies that we don't have a corollary to. And I think the fact that many types of fundamental uh, Christianity have presented such a closed view of who God loves um, makes it difficult for um, people of the Jewish faith to trust that if they come to a Christian event that they will be welcomed and that's the loss of everyone I would but, agree but I think that's very real I would agree with that mm -hmm. so how do folks get in touch with you oh how do they get in touch with me well um, they could go to my website which is donnamarietodd.com and they could listen to um, two samples of, of my storytelling there and learn a little bit about me and my background. And um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is just to visit me online. Okay. Well, I have been delighted <laughs> by this experience, and I am grateful uh, that you have been willing to spend your time telling us about this. Oh, thank uh, you, David. This won't be the only time. <laughs> Uh, that my audience will get to hear you because I have other reasons why I want to talk with you. Ah, you're very uh, But in part, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, uh, uh, because you've had some, some hard times in your own life. Yes, I have. Um, and have formed a, a ministry related to that. And yes. I think that that's something also that our mm -hmm. uh, my audience would like to hear. So, Yeah, I would just like to say that as far as that goes, and, and, and you know personally you know a lot about what I've been through um, as a widow, but one of the things that really um, keeps me coming back again and again and again to storytelling is this amazing thing that happens when we look at someone through the eyes of story and when we understand their story, because what changes when we hear someone else's story is that we are no longer them and us. We are one with everything. So, for instance, in the story of David and Bathsheba, obviously I can relate more to Bathsheba, perhaps, than I can to David. I can definitely relate to Uriah. And I... Um, once I've owned a story in the Bible as my own in my heart, once I've taken those characters into my heart, then I realize these were the people of God all these many years ago. This is not some dry thing that, you know, took place on a piece of parchment. This was a living experience that was so powerful. And I think this is really cool to think about. It was so powerful that it was passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years as something that should not be forgotten from one person's heart directly into another person's heart. And to me, that's the beauty of storytelling and why I keep doing it. And that sounds like a good place to say amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Donna Marie. You're welcome, David Rayburn. You're listening to Practicing Gospel. And I'm David Rayburn. The music for the intro and outro of this episode comes from the CD, Faith of Our Fathers, an acoustic celebration of old hymns, that Donna Marie made with Will Strong. You can learn more about the CD and about Donna Marie at D-O-N-N-A-M-A-R-I-E-T-O-D-D dot -D com.
In my next episode, I will be introducing an alternative to free market capitalism and socialism, both of which are growth economies. The alternative is steady-state economics. My guest will be Rob Dietz, who was the executive director for the Center for the Advancement of Steady-State Economics and is now program director for the Post-Carbon Institute. Rob co-authored a book with Dan O'Neill called Enough is Enough, Building a Sustainable Economy in a World of Finite Resources, in which he and Dan explain the problems of growth economies and help us to understand the steady-state economic alternative. I have been persuaded by steady-state economists as to their solutions, so this will be the first of what I hope will be an ongoing series of episodes informing you about this economic alternative. Please tune in. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Oh, to grace, how great our debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a feather, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to Take care.